Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to What That Old Queen a candid and adult take on queer life quandaries at a certain age. So please listen at your own discretion. Presented by Bernie and Tommy, their views are their own and in no way reflect those of any service you may hear this program on. Now, let your ears be upstanding for the <coughs> old queen. So you're hot off Instagram Live. I know. Hot off the press, yeah. With um, uh, what organisation was it again? The Guild Hall of Speech and Drama, being interviewed by Paula Varjak. Yeah. It Amazing. Was fun. Yeah. And what did you talk about? We talked about just sort of my, my work, really, in theatre. And when I had my 21st, which was just a year, over a year ago, um, Paula was one of the artists that came, so it was quite nice to about that moment and mm. how life used to be I think we were talking about it before the interview really and we were like all these things that we used to cram into one week like Paula was Paula had a mad week that week of the 21st she was sort of flew over to Berlin and came back and did a show and then came to mine and it was all like just managed to fit it all in life was very busy before mm. the pandemic and then it went on pause and mm. I think uh, it's really interesting because I think a lot of us were thinking before then, I just need a bit of space. And then we got it. And then we got it and we got way too much of it. <laughs> but so do you think we'll return to that? Or do you think it will be a more balanced life that we have? I sort of hope it would be more balanced, but I have a sneaking suspicion it won't be. Yeah. Because it's only you that balances it, really. It's, you're, only, you're in control of your own destiny. So I guess... If you have really thought about it and you make a deep commitment to, then you probably will. But mm. I think it's 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 a struggle just to, to not cram everything in all in. Yeah, and I think I found that like even the last couple of weeks, which have been busy, mm. like even going out maybe once or twice a week mm. into and doing everything else, mm. has been a little bit exhausting <laughs> after not doing very much at all for a while i just so. did the test for instagram at five um which i had to log into a completely new identity mm. in order to do that so that nobody could watch us and then after that i had a hot bath 
<laughs> just to chill you out yeah. beforehand. Oh, that's good. What, did you watch Eurovision Song Contest? I didn't because I was at a 50th birthday party having a whale of a time. Have you seen the footage of the cocaine taken? No. What What happened? Well, Italy, who won, mm. um, who were a bunch of beautiful boys, um, and barely legal, um, I think they were about 18 or 19, mm. um, were filmed taking coke at the table. Oh, what, on the live show yeah when they're announcing yeah first of all they were first of all they sort of panned over to them and they were all on their mobile phones looking really <laughs> bored and then the next shot they were taking coke but it's allegedly at the moment i think that they haven't proved it right we, we might have proved it by the time this airs what, what do they think it was like uh milk powder they were sniffing up their nose you couldn't really see what they were doing they were just looking straight down at the table okay <laughs> Uh, which I very often do during this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your script. <laughs> My script. Which you beautifully print out. But now I can print out because I've got a functioning printer. Yeah, finally. <laughs> the printer gate is over, we hope. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Uh, I can't believe you've had this problem. I've had my printer for nearly 10 years. Well, I'm just lot putting my cartridges in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't take, tell HP that. <laughs> um, I don't think they listen to this podcast anyway. Well, you never know. You're getting a bigger audience by the day. So we've got a special guest coming up. Who's our special guest, Tommy? It is Anna Goodman from Abstract Publicity. I know, amazing. I was reading that article that you sent me about her, and it's quite a wonderful life that she's had. Yeah. Uh, did you say something like it's kind of accidental the way that she slipped into things it feels like yeah it, yeah in a and i kind of identify with that because it's a lot of the stuff that i've done has been relatively accidental <laughs> <laughs> some might say a car crash but <laughs> but yeah i and i and i wonder well i want to ask her i wonder if she thinks that you could still have a career path like that it's all career by numbers at the moment, isn't mm. it? Even when you go to an interview, mm. it's all the same questions. It's like there's a real format to actually mm. getting a job mm. these days, rather than it just being you've Calling done this, something, something. Yeah. yeah, you've just you've done a bit of this, you've done a bit of that, and then you end up doing this. Mm. So, I want to ask her because she always said to me that she only spends a lot of money on a good haircut and a cleaner. I want to know if that's still true. Okay. I think that's wide, wise words. <laughs> I need a good cleaner because <laughs> I'm a terrible cleaner. <laughs> oh, I'm a terrible cleaner as well. I had a cleaner before the pandemic. Yeah, maybe I should restart that. Yeah, maybe. And we're going to do a, a we're going to do a what that really old queen because I had a meeting the other day about uh, queer history of Bristol. Um, which you should have been at. <laughs> I wasn't invited. Because you know way more about that stuff than I do. But um, I helped as much as I could. And I'm sure you were very helpful, Bernie. Well, I felt a bit bamboozled by it all, to be honest. But yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed, I will be able to did aid they, them. Did in they some say way. when was the legalisation of homosexuality? <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> And I said 1892. <laughs> you remember that well. I was 21. <laughs> um, but it reminded me that I've wanted to do a piece on Cary Grant, who 
was kind of openly gay, but not openly gay. He was like a, he was in the Hollywood closet, obviously. I think it's been much talked about, and the organisers of the Cary Grant Festival in Bristol would deny it. Yeah, well, I th- well actually, his daughter denied it for mm. a while, but she actually admitted it in 2016. So, but I've put a little piece together that I think we can share. But of course, Mr. Grant is a, a son of Bristol. Mm. He was born here. And what drew me to Cary Grant, I've always liked him, is his suaveness, his sophistication, particularly in the Hitchcock films, because you know I'm a massive Hitchcock fan. Uh, And he was obviously one of Hitchcock's muses. Mm. And I don't think I ever really thought about whether he was gay or not. Like, he moves very gracefully, but I think that's because he was was a bit of an acrobat to start off with. Yeah, he was a circus performer, wasn't he? Yeah, Yeah. and I've always noticed how how gracefully he kind of moves. But I never equated that to him, his sexuality or anything like that. And it didn't really um, draw my attention until I saw an article about him and Randolph Scott. I don't know who Randolph Scott is. I know the name. Well, I'm going to post some pictures, obviously, on our Instagram when when this goes out. Um, but he's also a devastatingly good-looking America American actor. And um, they only did one film together, which we'll talk about in a bit. But they live together. And um, anyway, should we get into it? And then we can... Let's get all of it. the All of these facts will unravel. So um, I did I did hear about this love affair of him and Randolph Scott and uh, in one article so I, d- I dug a little bit deeper and found some more stuff about another relationship so born Archibald Alec Leach January the 18th 1904 in Hawfield in Bristol I think he also lived in Picton Street as well as yeah, a child he, uh, he found a love of performance and theatre at the Hippodrome which obviously you did too yeah, I prodded the boards there. Yeah. And when Archie was only nine, his father put Archie's mother in a mental hospital, uh, remarried and abandoned Archie as a care of the state. So I imagine that um, the camaraderie and family of of the theatre appealed to him. That hospital was also, because I'm from Bristol, um, the hospital where my great uncle was at that same time. I like oh, really? to think that they might have known each other. Yeah. While they were doing their sort of crafting something, making a table mat. Or Crochet. Something. Yeah. Uh, maybe putting on plays. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. Um, do you want to do the next? Yeah. So by the age of 14, he was expelled from school and joined a travelling vaudeville show as a stilt walker. And then he moved to America five years later as part of a stilt walking troupe. But then he was barely scraping by working occasionally as a carnival barker in Coney Island and donning a threadbare suit as a paid escort for women while seeking work in vaudeville. Do you think he might have been a paid escort for men as well? But do you know, do you remember your 50th birthday when I did that lip sync of Mae West? Oh yes, you did, yeah. <laughs> and then she was talking about, who is that handsome young man over there? And they said, wow, that's Cary Grant. I'll have him. I liked him so much, I had him twice. (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) According to the celebrated costume designer, Ori Kelly, and his long-suppressed memoirs, that's when he started a turbulent affair with Grant. 
A vivid portrait emerges of Grant as an ambitious young immigrant vaudevillian who reinvented himself so thoroughly he ended up denying his true self in a homophobic industry. So Archie changed his name to Cary Grant in 1925 when he was 21. Kelly, who was painting murals for speakeasies and trying to break into show business as a set designer, had developed a lucrative sideline of handmade ties. As Leach volunteered to stencil on designs and sell them backstage at vaudeville houses for a cut of the action. <laughs> Branching out a couple of years later, the two men briefly ran their own speakeasy in Manhattan and had an even more short-lived casino in Nevada before they were shut down by gangsters who demanded money to spare their lives. They had a turbulent relationship was often interrupted into arguments and physical fights. Kelly paints a picture of someone who was heartbroken by Grant's many times, mentoring his partner's obsession with beautiful blondes, like me. <laughs> Which may mean that the actor was bi. Well, and Mae West, as you, you mentioned as well. So maybe she did have him twice. <laughs> and somebody else at the same time. I liked him so much, I had him twice. <laughs> In 1931, Carrie was under contract to Paramount, and he and Kelly's turbulent affair ended. Grant then met Randolph Scott on the set of, nine, of the 1932 movie Hot Saturday. The attraction was mutual, and they quickly began spending their free time together. Their friends from that period said the two handsome young actors lived together openly and began travelling in Hollywood's gay social circles. It's all very Brian Murphy, isn't it? Mm. When Cary Grant met actress Virginia Sherrill in 1934, Scott attempted suicide. They were living together after the end of Grant's marriage in 1935 um, and reunited once more after Scott's first marriage in 1936 to 1939 to Dolpont. Dupont. Dupont. Heiress. <laughs> is, is that a Eurovision Song Contest? <laughs> well, it's Nil Point if it's from Royaume-Uni. Um, <laughs> UK Han. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously not. Um, so there were several photo shoots uh, for fan magazines of the two merry bachelors, in inverted commas, and the beach house they shared was called Bachelor Hall. Yeah. In the photographs, it's quite clear that their relationship went beyond just roommates and they had a deep affection for each other. They would live together for a total of 11 years, longer than most Hollywood marriages. Yeah. Their good friend Carol Lombard, when joking about Grant's notorious cheapness, said... Their relationship is perfect. Randy pays the bills and Carrie mails them. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, posts them. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, between the two of them, they had seven failed marriages, but they were most likely to be marriages of convenience. Or lavender marriages, I think it's called in, in Hollywood circles. Uh, Mr. Blackwell, a notorious fashion critic lived with Carrie and Randolph for several months. In his memoir, he said he considered them deeply, madly in love and their devotion complete. Behind closed doors, they were warm, kind, loving and caring and unembarrassed about showing it. By 1940, they were no longer living together due to the pressure of the studio heads to marry and protect their image. They only made one movie together. Ironically, it was called My Favourite Wife. 
Carrie and Randy Scott arrived as a pair and instead, in, instead of taking separate suites, moved into the same room together to surprise all the cast and crew. Grant's daughter from his last marriage always claimed Carrie wasn't gay, but he used to like playing and flirting with the idea of it until 2016 when she admitted he was gay. And my favourite, most heartwarming piece of the article, which has all the pictures of uh, Carrie and Randy together, which is from communityoflight.com, was that right at the very end it says, the maitre d' at the Beverly Hillcrest Hotel saw both actors in the 1970s sitting at the back of the restaurant long after the place has emptied Carrie Grant and Randolph Scott were sitting alone quietly holding hands cute I know it's almost heartbreaking mm. like they they've been in this closeted treadmill I mean I don't really understand I mean I can understand it when you're a brand and you're you're trying to sell movies and particularly with that climate you weren't allowed to be gay, were you? I mean, it was illegal from in most countries at that point. I'm, I'm not quite sure whether it was illegal in America or not, but it certainly wasn't fashionable. Mm. And and it's almost like they could have spent their whole lives together by mm. the sounds of this, but they couldn't because of the pressure of Hollywood and mm. and society, really. You missed out any references to LSD. I know. I didn't, well, I thought I had so much in there. I didn't. <laughs> but I did watch a brilliant documentary about him microdosing on LSD. And it was, you know, he was quite pioneering in that way. Yeah. I think we're all doing that now. I certainly am. <laughs> well, I, I did this evening. <laughs> Your hair is a, an amazing shade of paisley. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and what was he? What was he doing it for? Depression, I think, wasn't it, or or anxiety, or something like that? Yeah, no, I think it was. I think it was actually to do with the trauma of a difficult childhood, because yeah. I think what happened was that he, yeah, he was told that his mother was dead, and when actually she was in um, French A hospital, and they only just, you know, as as an older man, he started to reconnect with her. Um, because he was told that she was actually live, and he would he would visit her oh, in wow. French A, and um, yeah, I think it was it was it was something that was really impactful for him, really. Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, it's difficult life, isn't it? Really. Mm. I mean, he, again, like, and he, you've got all of that stigma around mental health, at, as well as as well as being queer. Yeah. You know, it's all in the mix, really. So yeah, whether he was gay or whether he was bi, mm. you know, that mm. either not very de rigueur at the time was it no no but uh, an amazing but he did well for a lad from Horfield. did well from a lad from Horfield that was in care and just went to the states on a shoestring and made a life for himself i my sort of recollections of him is always sort of him coming out of the sea in a figure hugging trunk well you know he was up for bond it, oh, he would have he was meant to be the original bond but um, but I don't know whether he turned it down. But it, it, yeah, Sean Connery got it instead. But I think he would have been a good Bond. I recently watched him and Audrey Hepburn in Charade. Well, which is like a Hitchcock film, but not a Hitchcock film. Yeah, <laughs> I love that film. It's great. It's set in Paris. Mm. Yeah, I mean he's a really old man in that film. Well, and yeah, Audrey Hepburn's quite young still, but still very good looking. Yeah, I mean he wouldn't. Say no, would you? Never. <laughs> I also wouldn't say no to Sean Connery either, but, you know, that's just me. Right. Well, we'll have a little break, and we will be back after this. 
Please like and share this podcast. Tell all your friends you're listening. And if you can spare some cash, please donate to our Patreon or our button on our website. Oh yes, push the button on our website and give us some cash today. Oh yeah, yeah. Doobie dooby doo. Thanks for listening and all your support. We love you. Oh, yes, we do. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So we're back. And we have a fabulous guest, Anna Goodman, uh, but I'm going to leave it up to you, Tommy, to introduce. Well, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a friend and um, a colleague in some ways, um, Anna Goodman from Abstract Publicity. How are you doing, Anna? I'm fine. I'm so happy to be here. And it's lovely to see you and Bernie. And thank you for asking me. And you're a listener to the show. I am. I am. I've been listening to it, and I loved listening to Les Childs and Scott Capuro. Oh, yeah. And, um, amazing. Rhiannon. Um, I've been listening to lots of people. Um, oh, and John Lee Bird I listened to as well, who John, I know. Yeah, John was fantastic. We couldn't get yeah, rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> we actually stayed on Zoom until the, the tablet ran out of battery <laughs> after the record. Yeah. <laughs> and had a fabulous time, I have to say. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a lovely 
podcast. Yeah, he's also a whiskey drinker. Yes, as you yes. said about and your love of whiskey. I know you mentioned Slapper, but they're one of my favourite London bands. I always love going to see Slapper with Suey Sue, John Lee Bird, Stefan. You know, they're really fantastic. If you've never seen them, you know they have to come to Bristol. Slapper. Yeah, totally. they have been to Bristol, but I managed to miss them. I mean, Suey comes <laughs> to Bristol because she's got a friend here. The thing about Slapper is they're an experience. When you go and see them, it's like a party, and everybody. You see people that you might only ever run into at their gigs, but they're always so incredibly friendly. And you can take anybody. I've taken the most random people to see Slapper, and they always thank me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, t- Tommy, before, um, obviously, w- w- we booked you for the show, Tommy sent me this fabulous article that you'd written in Run Riot about your career. And I loved how your career kind of ev- evolved by association and accident rather than intent. And it, it, and it kind of it's quite expi- inspiring and kind of reminiscent of my own career in many respects but I was wondering you know, do you think we live in such a different world that those opportunities won't thrive anymore and an unconventional right. route into a career is not going to happen I do think that and it is very upsetting in a way on one hand um, nepotism is something that we you know we don't want to encourage I will say that if I hadn't known the people that I knew, I would not be in the position that I'm in now. And given that nobody that I'm discussing, none of them were, you know, partners of mine or people that I had sort of intimate relations with, it's all been about work and aesthetics from start to finish and sheer enthusiasm. But then I say another thing, which is that if you're reliable and you can work hard and you're really passionate about things people want you because there aren't enough people that are reliable there's enough people well, that, that's that, just work ethic is transferable isn't it to anything yeah totally but, but i mean i i was a late starter because i dropped out and i didn't go to university um you know i went to kensington market instead <laughs> <laughs> and you used to work on the door at heaven and you shared do. door duties with Voguing maestro Willie Ninja. I did, yes. That was via Barbara Tucker, who's some beautiful people, which I, is a house track that you I might love, dance. I love Barbara Tucker. She's one of my favourite singers. Barbara Tucker's a really great woman, and she was very kind to me in New York, and she's still going strong. And what actually happened was that um, I can't remember how I originally met Barbara, whether it was over here or over there, but certainly um, she asked me to do the door of the tunnel. And the guy that ran the tunnel had had something to do with Studio 54 because there was this nucleus of clubs. There was the tunnel area and I can't remember the other ones. But anyway, this guy who ran the tunnel really did not like me one little bit. And I was working there with Willie. But Willie had made a record and obviously he had to perform this record. I think it was, um, can't remember what label it was on. So he started doing um, PAs, and when he was, which meant he couldn't do door duties. So I stood in for him at the Sound Factory bar, which was separate to the Sound Factory. That was um, not the Saturday night with Junior Vasquez. It was the Wednesday night with Louis Vega, um, who was part of Masters at Work. And it was what they call a music industry night, but it was tremendously black, Latin, gay, trans, fantastic women, hot boys, the lot. And it was the most amazing night. And Barbara Tucker was the host. It was it was her night with, with um a guy called Don Welch. And um yeah, no, she was just really kind to me and really, really supportive. What sort of qualities do you think you need to have to be a good door person? 
Um, you need to be able to say no and not care what people think um, because, you know, sooner or later they're going to be nice. I mean, I could, they knew people who've been incredibly rude to me and they've had to be nice at a different time. I think you have to be able to... Um, it's the reliable thing. And I was never... I wasn't... You see, there were different types of door people. There were types of people that picked and they would say, well, you look nice and you look nice. Now, in New York, they tried to get me to do that at Nels. And if there was an incident with Tupac which you might remember where there was, where Tupac got accused of rape and he, the person he met was at Nails. So the people that ran Nails decided that it was too much about hip hop. So they decided to put a white English girl on the door. This was obviously, I was in New York by then and I'm jumping subjects a lot. But when they tried to get me to do this picking with people, I didn't want to do it because, you know, I like all sorts of different types of people. And when a group of guys came along, I just used to say to them, listen, why don't you just go home and go and bring some girls and then I'll let you in? You know, I just tried to be fair because ultimately it's about instinct, isn't it? Yeah, totally. But you And you were quite influential in the growth of hip-hop, weren't you? But you likened... <laughs> Likened it to live art and LGBTQ plus performances. <laughs> well, I work with hip hop dance and I have done um, since 2001 through John Z. D., um, who actually was one of the first people I knew to tell me all about Colston Hall needing renaming and told me all about Colston Hall. So, I mean, in hip hop itself, no, I mean, I used to listen to hip hop when I was young. I had all the Def Jam records, you know, I had. Um, everything and the cookie crew British girls you know and I loved the early scene and what I loved about the clubs back then was the mix of people because you know you had a group of break dancing boys in one corner and then you had kind of Lee Bowery in another corner and that's how it was. Were you a, a backing singer? Um, I have done backing singing I've done backing singing I've sung the record that got to number one well I didn't sing on it. I what was the record up. that got to number one tell us well, I wasn't in the band, but I'm the voice that goes, S Express. I knew oh, it. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And, yeah. and obviously, <laughs> S Express have, have a big Bristol connection as well. They were they were quite... They? Yeah, there is. I, I can't remember what it is, but there's a, there's a connection to Bristol with S Express. My connection well, to S Express one... was French, in French, the coolest boy in school. We had to say, you know, something about ourselves. And he said, uh, je m'appelle Seb. J'adore S Express. <laughs> I heard a lot of international stories about that record. My friend in um, my friend told me that she took her first acid trip in in Germany listening to it. Um, and um, it's funny because it's a long time ago now. You know, I mean, it's it's like I think it was eighty seven or something. But it, I wasn't in the band. It was a separate thing, and it just came out of a conversation I had with Mark Moore and who I'm still in touch with. But with singing, I'm actually trying to thinking about, sorry, I'm being a bit inarticulate, but I'd like to do some music now. Um, I want to take up an instrument again. I'm not the world's greatest singer, but I can sing probably now better than I could then because I don't smoke any. But, uh, but can uh, you teach us how to do S Express? I don't think I need to, do I? I think that you can, <laughs> you're, both, you're both trained actors. Should, should we do, do it? That. Should we do it? Let's all do it together. See if we can do it. Yes, express. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We can't go into it. Anyway. But, yeah, you. I mean, your career seems really amazing. And what is it you're actually doing now? So you've got abstract. Okay. So basically, you know, I didn't have a career. Well, but you've built one up 
from yes it's true i did i was actually a dropout and i remained a dropout for some time what i did was that after i worked i worked for lots of different i mean looking back it sounds a lot more impressive than it was at the time that's one way i'd say but i have a um, pr company and how that happened was that i was i got a job with a record company promoting records thinking this would be my dream job and actually barbara tucker was on that label strictly rhythm but it wasn't it was very tough and i ended up forming my own company abstract in 99 uh, and I was promoting house music, but I got really interested in hip hop poetry that was coming out of New York and also in London. There was a really fabulous scene in London. There probably was in Bristol as well. And there were all these kind of open mics where people were jamming. And I wanted to do some different things. And that's why I called it abstract. There was a lot of independent, you know how in those days there was a lot of import house records that everybody was buying. There was also a lot of really interesting underground hip hop records. So I was doing a little bit of that, and that's how I came into doing stage work. So it was John Z. D. that asked me to work with this show, The Aeroplane Man, which is about a British black man from East London who doesn't really feel that they fit in. So they kind of go to all these different countries. And um, it was made um, and it was performed all over the world. And then they sort of eventually, without it being a spoiler, they come back. And it's about the black British experience. And I really enjoyed promoting it. And it was interesting because back then when I used to speak to some of the papers, like you know, the Voice newspaper or whatever, I was finding out that they weren't getting the stories from other PRs. You know, people weren't going to them with a lot of things. They were being sort of, you know, sort of kept away from a lot of really kind of key interviews. So I wanted to do something to bring, to really kind of bring people together. And then that happened because I'd worked in gay clubs when I was younger. And as, as you know, and I got asked to promote Annie Sprinkle in 2007 by a wonderful man called Luke Dixon, for the International Workshop Festival, which was a very queer festival. You know, um, there was all sorts of amazing workshops you could do, sword dancing. What I mean, did you, you make do... of Annie Sprinkle's work? I, had you come across it before? It. Yes. I'd read about Annie in the 90s, and I'd actually been quite fascinated by her. I didn't go and see her in London. I think she was stopped from doing her public service announcement. But what <laughs> I loved about Annie was the fact that as a sex worker as a former sex worker she'd managed to become a feminist icon and somebody who'd reclaimed you see in 2007 people weren't ready for this mm. there was a very strong movement of, of of younger women who were sort of beginning to reclaim what they i suppose a sort of sex positive identity but trying to pitch Annie to the main, mainstream press was extremely difficult because at this point she'd she'd recovered from breast cancer which was what this piece was about. And there was an amazing story that went with it because really she's an incredibly knowledgeable woman and her partner, Elizabeth Stevens, made the show with her as a really strong artist and performer. And the pair of them together were a real tour de force, but people were still being extremely reticent to interview Annie. And, um, but anyway, it changed my career and introduced me to Chelsea Theatre and then everything sort of came full circle um, because I had done so much work and I'd been around, you know, I'd worked in at heaven for seven years. Well, that's what, like, I think, that's how I think about you because I, I have to thank you because you are responsible for one of the most magical nights of my life when I was doing King's Cross Remix which is about, well it's about a lot of things but one of the things it's about is about the kind of club kids of the 1980s and I kind of in that show I name check quite a lot of them 
and Anna brought all of them to the show. Wow. So there was I brought as many as I could. Yeah, you brought as well, many as you could. It was just so charged that night because I was talking to people that were, were there that, you know, it was about. And it was beautiful. I, mean, I think I feel quite emotional now because during lockdown, you know, I have felt more emotional than before. And also one of the things I have come to realise is how fantastic these people are. I'm not saying that in a kind of zhuzhi way. I'm really saying that from the heart because there are people I've had differences with. They're not bad people. They're all right. You know, we just don't necessarily get along. But most of those people, because obviously we've lost so many, you know, there's a huge sense of community and empathy. And there are people that are maybe between our respective ages as well, or people who are still kind of DJing and going Mm. out. And it's of huge importance to us. And I don't think that we particularly want to stop. It's not that we want to stay out late all the time. and It's just that's about keeping the, carrying the torch, I suppose. Mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, but King's Cross Remix was an exceptional show. And I think we should see it again one of these days. Definitely. Should, yeah. We wanted to ask you about your, your childhood and your family. You know, when I've hung out with you, we've had breakfast in... Soho together and you often talk about them as influences on you can you tell us you know like what it was like growing up in London yes absolutely well first of all it's taken me a long time to realize how much I took for granted first of all I mean it it wasn't everybody's mother that was obsessed with Dirk Bogart and it wasn't (laughs) everybody's dad that well I'll tell you something that happened to me about two years ago my dad died in 1995 And I was trying to find something about his career because he was in the film business. And it was, you know, he was in and out of work. And I found this audio, which he'd recorded, that I never knew about, four hours of it. And I haven't heard his voice since he died. But anyway, to cut it short, there's a whole section about Frankie Howard. I knew he'd worked with Frankie Howard. And I knew he had a lot of respect for him. Um, But I didn't really know the story. And... What actually happened was there were two really, I can't remember the names of the films, but they weren't, they were, they were not successful that Frankie made before he kind of became much more successful on television. And he was incredibly unhappy about it. And one of the things my father said is he said, look, I'm not gay, but I understood Frankie. Nobody on that set understood Frankie. They didn't understand why he was upset. They didn't understand how to work with him. And my dad would have been really young as well. He would have been under 25 at the time. I mean, he had some job he was probably assisting, you know. And it made me realise he'd always had, he's always had this really real kindness and respect for gay people because, you know, I suppose many people he'd admired were gay. And it was the same with my mother. So there was this thread running through their whole aesthetic and and got to a point when I was older where she started asking me why I brought so many gay men home. And I said, well, they're the only people that understood what I'm talking about. (laughs) You know, when I reference films and, you know, there's so much that I gained from that experience. And yet when punk came along, there was also a lot of gay references there Mm, because there was that, you know, and, and I think that there were things that felt very natural I mean, I often find with straight men of around my age who went through the same sort of musical club influences, they're much more knowledgeable about gay culture than people who weren't involved in those scenes. Mm. You know, they have more respect for it. Why Um, do you think that is? Well, I think because they realise that pop culture and all the records that that even before when we were small children, you know, rock and roll was gay. Mm. 
and for all the male posturing, you know, all of the, all of the, you know, every man who was styled to be sexually attracted to young women, it was really a gay aesthetic that those young women were buying into. Completely. And And even with, we mentioned Cary Grant earlier and Hollywood was run by gay men (laughs) and still is. (laughs) And then none of them are out. Uh, Yeah. I know. And I think, I think that the difference was that, you know, London had Tim Pan Alley and it had Svengali's and it had that quintessential kind of British um, star making, um, you know, that we now know about all the kind of sleazy stuff that happened. We know a lot more about it. You know, pop wouldn't be pop without, I, I shouldn't sort of join any kind of sleazy references, by the way, to that. I was kind of thinking more about that when I was growing up, it was the era of camp, you know, du Blantange and and um, sitcoms and everything. The camper it was, the more my family seemed to love it. To the point that <laughs> mine too. <laughs> you know, I mean, this, was, this was entirely, you know. And then then what happened that was that I discovered Joe Orton as a teenager, and my mother loved Joe Orton, so she took me to see Luke with Leonard Rossiter as Truscott of the Yard. Wow. And I mean, can you imagine what a wonderful thing for a mother to do? Yeah. Really. That sounds brilliant. You know, exceptional. I mean, Leonard Roster actually died during that run. I mean, he died during a performance, you know that. No, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I think he missed a cue and, and he died in the dressing room. Well, well that's I'm the saying. way I'd like to go. <laughs> that's where we're all well, going to go. <laughs> I was lucky to see him before he died as Truscott of the Yard with my mum. I don't remember who else was in it. I really should Google it. It's probably someone fantastic. But yeah, she always took me to see things like that. And then when I was 18, my dad bought me a present and it was a membership to the what was then the National Film Theatre. And he said, you should join this. This is what you should be doing. If you're that interested, you know, do something useful instead of just hanging around gigs all the time. And he's insisted that I should go and see Jean Cocteau films. He said, you have to see these, you know. And it was it was really nice because I think that there was a lot of pressure on women to do secretarial courses and do something useful. But they'd kind of given up with me by this point. So they thought, well, at least I might as well develop these kind of interests that they'd kick-started so successfully at home, you know. But my mother was a great devotee of all things, um, you know, sort of from Noel Coward to... Um, I, she was completely obsessed with Dirk Bogard. You know, after she died, I found a whole load of VCRs of every Bogard film, complete with all the commercials in the middle from when she taped them off the television. <laughs> Love Dirk Bogart. I think we've done a piece on Dirk Bogart, yeah, haven't yeah, we? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because actually quite... Dirk Bogart was one of those people that I got really into during lockdown because I was listening to his book. He was doing audio books before they were a thing. I gather he was quite crotchety. Mm. Well, we, know, can, we can all be a bit crotchety in our old age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was never going to come out because people didn't, you know. I mean, um, Larry Grace didn't come out. I mean, nobody came out back then. And this is why I always credit Holly Johnson, because I think that before Frankie goes to Hollywood, you know, everybody was saying things like, oh, you know, I prefer a cup of tea or mm. I'm bisexual and all this kind of stuff. Mm. But Doe Burgart did come out. He came out on on a Parkinson interview in his older age. Uh, but he spoke about his lover who died, who he lived with in the south of France. This I didn't know. I'm uh, really surprised. I did he, he, did, not... he did, yeah. And I, I saw it recently because I think um, BBC Two do a thing called Talking Pictures, which uh, which it's a compilation of all the interviews. 
and uh, one of those is an interview where he he literally was quite brazen about it but it was very this later on in his life this is news to me because i didn't realize that and i'm glad because well i mean you, you know recently there's been this book that i haven't i keep meaning to read that stanley baxter's written where he's quite emotional about why he didn't come out before as if he feels really bad about it which is a shame because he had his reasons mm. and he had a very complicated situation with a woman he married who he felt very kind of i think he i think you know i think also you know he wasn't on television anymore he was living in another country he turned down a lot of work because he didn't want to do sort of stand up under the spotlight he wanted to do these big costume shows and nobody really wanted to pay for them anymore so he just kind of wanted to keep a low profile, but there was a lot more pressure. I mean, I think before people weren't coming out really, I mean, they're still not, but I think it was, it, it's, it's only really been in the last, what would you say, 10, 15 years at the most? Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's, uh, there's so many people who are closeted. I mean, what do you think about that at the moment? Uh, you work in PR and what, what no. do you think about people that, who aren't coming I, out even now? I think that first of all, there needs to be a movement. So in Germany, about two months, three, four months ago, 180 people, or maybe a few more, decided to come out on the same day. Do you know about this? No, I didn't know about this. They are actors. They are writers. They are all sorts of people who are well-known in Germany. And none of them, from what I understand, had come out before. So I think it would be really great if a group of actors could do this because the other thing is that I don't, I know it's all about box office numbers, but if I don't understand why a gay actor can't play a straight leading role, because they've been doing that for years anyway. And also young women seem to be so fascinated, but you know, young people now seem to be so tuned in with gay people in a more positive way. Mm. Surely they would accept them as actors. Totally. If this was the case, you know, and I'm very, actually, but I'm very heartened by young people because I think that they're so nonchalant about who's gay and who isn't. Mm, yeah. Did you watch Holston? Did I watch? No, I haven't watched it yet. Mm. Um, I don't actually have Netflix because I'm online all day. Mm. So I try not to watch too much stuff. I watch a lot of old films and I listen to a lot of radio stuff. But I Do you watch like Bernie's see... favourite TV sh- station? What, Talking what, Pitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me, I love Talking Pictures TV. I was watching an interview with Peter Cushing earlier on this evening. <laughs> which yeah, he's... Peter, am I right in saying that Peter Cushing has the same birthday as Christopher Lee? I, I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, really strange, I think that is. I think it's, it's very peculiar. Um, but anyway, I, I love Talking Pictures. And what I particularly like about it is the fact that it's just so politically incorrect. The other night I was watching this film called <laughs> All Coppers Are. <laughs> yeah, I saw that was on. I didn't watch it. <laughs> Did you see it? Well, I mean, the, I mean, I would say that women watching it should take a very deep breath with some of the dialogue. I mean, you know, there is some very inappropriate and very, um, you know, it's kind of jaw droppingly inappropriate. But for what it for what it's worth, it's quite a good watch. But they don't really but, put any trigger warnings or like they actually do. Do they? They do. They they do. They, they do say beforehand that some of the views and <laughs> dialogue in this movie are from a different time. <laughs> well, they have to do it. Yeah. They have to do it with racism because otherwise, it's just. They, they have to say something. But yeah. they, they screened Sapphire, which was a film that 
has often been shown about a, um, a racially motivated murder. I think in the early 60s, it's, a really, it's really well worth seeing. So they've also tried to show films that haven't been screened here a lot, you know, because I think what happened was they had this whole collection of films and they took them to, the, to various channels and nobody was interested. Mm. Um, I, I think, think that the- I, we're always thinking about sponsorship deals. Maybe we could get sponsorship deal from Talking Pictures. Talking Pictures No, you won't, you won't get that because they're absolutely desperate for advertising. They're so, they've got yeah. this awful advert. Have you seen it, Bernie, about the litigation company that have sponsored half their... I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's before, before, after, and during every single film that's on there. <laughs> no, they are. They need the advertising. You won't get sponsorship from them. The problem with sponsorships is you do have to sell your soul. You know, yeah. I think I think what would be really great would be if you could get sponsorship from a really good whiskey manufacturer. Well, then- uh, well, I think alcohol is, uh, you know. Uh, raison d'etre for sponsorship so (laughs) so any alcohol firms out there that want to sponsor us please do email and get in touch Anna it's uh, it's amazing to talk to you well I literally could uh, talk to you all evening (laughs) but we need to move on to Queens of Agony you you're gonna stay in the throne room I I think I've probably talked quite a lot of rubbish but but I mean you know not at all it's so interesting I literally could talk to you all night but maybe out out of recording a podcast you uh, we can all have a drink sometime and uh, that'd be lovely (laughs) chew the cud Right, I'm going to do a big gong, but you're going to stay and give your two uh, penneth on some agony aunt for some queer people. Yeah. I think Anna's going to be brilliant at this. I think you're going to be very good at this, and we've got some interesting questions. A lot of people are very angsty and nervous by some of the questions that we're getting this week. How do you mean? Well, I, I don't know. They're nervous, and um, I uh, well, well, you'll find out when I when I read them. Okay. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so dear old queens and Anna, obviously, <laughs> unless you want to be regarded as an old queen as well, <laughs> the Duchess. Yeah, the old Duchess and the old queens. <laughs> Am I being dramatic about travel during the pandemic? My boyfriend wants me to take a vacation to the Bahamas this summer. I'm very nervous about this, mostly due to the pandemic. We're both vaccinated, but my fear is that a travel ban could be announced while we're there, thus causing us to be stranded and at risk of losing our jobs. (laughs) He thinks I'm being unreasonable and that what ifs shouldn't stop you from living your life. I feel that we could still have a fun vacation at home with no major risk. Am I being unreasonable here? I don't think he's unreasonable at all. I think it's like, I think that everyone should be going on holiday in the UK unless there's a valid reason to go away. I actually think this person's from the United States. Okay. Partly because of some of the stuff that I edited out. (laughs) No names, no patrol. But, I don't know, what do you think about travelling? I think you get... Well, I think... If they're in America... Yeah. Um, the, the thing is that because of the scale of the country, anywhere where they're likely to go might be on the plane anyway. Mm, yeah. You know, and, and for example, if they're in, because Bahamas is really near Florida, isn't it? So, I mean, I don't know whereabouts they are, what the figures are like. If they were in Britain, I would say, wait, because, I mean, you can go to the Bahamas next year, you know, you could do something. It's a tricky one because the thing is, I don't really think that for me, 
a holiday somewhere like that. I, I thought, I'm not really that bothered about the Bahamas. I don't really think they should. I, I, I think that really it's it's not a good a good move. No. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate. But when do we get back to normal? When do we start taking risks again and living our lives? This is well, like an episode of Loose Women and you're playing Janet Street Porter. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't cooked any roadkill recently. I think there's going to be a new normal. First of all, we're just entering into a phase where we're, we're all getting vaccinated for the most part, but the figures are still going up because we have this variant. Mm. We don't really know what's ahead. So it's it's about adapting and trying to think about things in the short term and not in the long term. I mean, obviously, that's in terms of holidays anyway. Um, because really, I don't think that you should be creating extra difficulties for yourself at a time like this. You should make everything easier. Mm. Yeah. When was the last <clears throat> time you not, went on not, holiday, Anna? Well, it was in January 2020, I went to Tenerife which was kind of nice. Mm. I liked looking at all the black volcanic sand and all the rest of it. But it was really a bit of a, it was, what I what I really want to do is to visit some places I've never been to. Like I really want to go to um, Iceland and I want to go to Copenhagen and I want to go to lots of European places that I've never seen. What I don't want to do is to go anywhere too exhausting. There's mm. only one place, there's only two places a long way away that I really want to go to, Mexico City, and I'd yeah. like to go to Japan. But apart from that, I don't really want to be flying any more than about, you know, three or four hours at the most. Yeah. What do you wear on a beach in Tenerife, Anna? I always see you in black. I or, did have black. Well, no, I have, I have a leopard print bikini. Ooh. Do you? Yes, I do. It's It's got black in it. And it's it's really nice bikini. I'm very proud of it. And to be honest, I'm, I'm better off with a bikini than a one piece, even at my age, because I'm kind of, different top and bottom so everything fits perfectly if i get a bikini top tip absolutely <laughs> I, I i actually think you're right i think we can all put our lives on hold for a little bit longer in terms of traveling abroad i think uh, but my nephew was meant to get married last year then this year and now it's all been deferred to next year i th- in italy so it's just i think we can all kind of i think they're like the freedoms that we've got now uh so massive compared to what we had in January, exactly. aren't they? Yeah. Like, I'm just yeah, and the knowledge yeah. because yeah. we, you know, there's all sorts of things we didn't know before. But also, I think that it would be nice to put some money into the travel industry because people are really, you know, it's collapsing. And I feel yeah. I do know people who work in it, and it's terrible. But at the same time, I think there are ways that it can be done, I and mean, there's definitely safer places to go. And also, we don't necessarily have to wait that much longer. Mm. I mean, if if more people do get vaccinated and it does seem to kind of create some sort of st- stability, then it might not be too long to yeah. have to sort of forgo these lengthy tri- excursions. Yeah. So maybe Christmas in the Bahamas. Yeah, why don't they just push it back a couple of months? I don't really see what the big deal is. I don't think the Bahamas sound that exciting anyway. I mean, if they wanted to go, you know, get a, go down the Amazon or go somewhere really, you know, but I mean, the Bahamas is just. I don't know why people get excited about. Going I don't to think we're supposed like... to be criticising their <laughs> holiday choices. <laughs> I mean, I've never been, so it sounds quite exciting <laughs> to me. But I probably, maybe I'd hate it. I don't know. I'll tell you I... what it is. I'll tell you why, why I say this. If you live somewhere 
it's different. But if you go as a tourist, you're not getting the authentic experience and it's just about being a tourist. That's my point. Yeah. There's okay. nothing against the Bahamas, I can assure you. <laughs> okay, Anna. Um, a Bahamas tourist board, I'm just deleting them calling us right now anyway so shall we move on <laughs> dear uh, dear old queens do you sexualize everyone i sometimes wonder if this is a natural human behavior or if it's just a me thing and if it is just a me thing what does it mean Literally, every man I see, whether it's in person, walking down the street, at work, in a car next to me, at the stoplight, etc., I always size them up for sex. Would I lay down with this man, or I wonder what he looks like naked? <laughs> it's not that I I would or even want to have sex with every man I considered acceptable. I don't believe <laughs> but I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm always sizing them up. Of course, since I'm gay, I don't do this to women, only men. Is this normal behaviour? Well, what? There's no normal for a start. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah, and secondly, this person's obviously not getting enough sex. I don't think anyone is in this pandemic, <laughs> especially true. if they're single. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about sex all the time, then you're not having it. Yeah. I do like to think about people naked a lot of the time. Do you? Do you? Yeah, and that stems from being at school where you're really bored in a class and you just imagine your teacher naked. It's not a sexual thing. Uh, in most <laughs> cases, it isn't. I, I, I'm not really about how people look naked. For me, it's all about kind of touch and smell and things like that. You know, I don't really care what they look like naked, to be honest, as, yeah. long, as long as they smell nice. It's a je ne sais quoi. What do you like your mm. partner to smell like, Anna? Um, I, because I bought two fragrances this week. Did you buy two? I thought you were buying one. <laughs> no, I've ended up okay. buying two. How many? Because you, you, you used to you used to be a top fragrance salesperson, did you not? Tom? Well, I was for Prada, yeah, top salesperson yeah. in the country. Yes. Yeah. I actually like people's natural smells. I don't like it when they smell of any particular scent, but. When people wear it and it's part of their style and they're dressed up and they're going out for the evening, that's a completely different thing. I think it, in, can, it can accentuate someone's smell, and like a scent can can be accentuated. But yeah, and I think I think that's that's really interesting when it, it works well together. Yes, it does. I know exactly what you mean. It's just that I've noticed when I've been on dates with people who wear a loss of some sort of um, aftershave or cologne or whatever, it strikes me that they're quite nervous and I find that quite off-putting because it makes me nervous. But uh, I like um, natural smells and also, um, you know when you kind of, you're, you're very, when you're very intimate with someone, sorry, I'm just kind of putting myself into that zone now, and you actually are so free. familiar that, that you, could, you can close your eyes and you can judge them. If you're not with them, you can kind of imagine what they smell like. In yeah. a good way, of course, and that to me is much more interesting than what they look like naked. That's good. Well, that, I think that's a very, it's a very feminine point of view as well. But maybe, yeah. maybe gay men have that. Yeah, because I think in the gay world, everything is about aesthetic and what you're wearing, what you look like, and whether you're whether you've been to the gym or not. And and I think there's a lot of pressure on on gay men and women to look a certain way and uh, and i think we need to get back to personality and maybe body odor and you know a sexiness about someone that which isn't just about the look yes i think so because the thing is when i fancy somebody 
it really is about the essence of the person completely you know but then as you say maybe it is very much a feminine thing i also think with straight men they do change a lot as time goes on they start off with this kind of idealized image of women and as time goes on i think that can actually you know to give straight men their dues be quite scary for them in a way i think i think when it comes down to it if you take care of yourself whatever shape or size you are if you have a great energy and when I talk about being fit, I don't mean gym fit, but just like you've got that energy and you've got that kind of zest. I think that's a very attractive thing. And if people don't like the way you look because of your shape, then, you know, they're best avoided anyway. Mm. So that whole thing about imagining people naked, it doesn't really go back to that. But do you sexualize? But do you, I mean, I think I, uh, if I fancy someone, I think maybe I do sexualize them, but I don't I do it to, to- everyone. Well, that's the question is about the question the person that's written in is about everyone. Yeah, yeah I don't do it to everyone, but I do, but I don't fancy everyone. <laughs> so, and again, like you, I think I, I have more of an attraction to, to men like you do. It, it's, it's not necessarily about their aesthetic or how they look, it is about who they are as a person. Oh, and you know the other thing voices. Of course. Voices. Voices are massive for me because I work in the voice industry anyway. So yeah. like a sexy voice really does it. Voices are everything, really. So how people are naked, as well as which, let's say I really fancied someone a lot and I got on with them as a person. By the time we're naked, I'm going to have to kind of, you know, I'm not going to really kind of, you know, put my foot down to the expressions. <laughs> <laughs> the shutters aren't going to go down at that point, really. You're just going to take somebody as they are. But in terms of sexual, But you're looking people, great in your leopard skin bikini. Well, thank obviously. you. <laughs> yeah, it's in, it's, in my, it's in my cupboard. I should have put it on for this interview. That would have been well, we'll just imagine that you are. Well, the, well, the question was, do you sexualize everyone? And the answer is no. But I don't no. necessarily think there's there's anything wrong with that, as long as you're not pressurizing people to have sex with you who don't want to. <laughs> but I'm interested to know the age of this person as well, because I, you definitely get through a phase of life where you do kind of think, sec- you know, about people sexually more. Yeah, I think with women, it's. I think with men, it's when they're young. With women, it's their dirty thirties. Well, I was dirty thirties as well. I peaked the same as women, uh, like twenties. Yeah. I was very chaste and didn't think about it very much. But yeah, dirty thirties. When you're in your twenties, you're always kind of worrying that you're doing everything wrong, or that people think there's something wrong with you. And by the time you get to your thirties, you become really quite confident. I know I was much more confident in my thirties. So I think that was a time also where you kind of feel like all of you kind of feel like you understand things that you didn't before and you have a power that goes with it. Nice. I think I felt that more in my forties, <laughs> but I, I, I kind of agree with that. All right, let's move on. We've got two more questions to get through. They are quite short actually though. But dear old Queens, how did gays communicate to other gays when they were gay? <laughs> I mean, I think this person hasn't, hasn't listened to some of our episodes, but I thought I'd stick it in anyway. Hi, uh, young gay here. I was just wondering, how did gays in the 50s, 60s and 70s approach showing other men that they were into men? Like, did you use special clothing, accessories, colours, special words? Thank you for your time. I don't know why they're asking all of us, because we're we're younger, but... There's some really great stories about this kind of thing. Mm. 
I mean, we've talked about a lot about Polari. Have we talked about Polari? We talked about Polari. We've talked about the hanky code. Mm. There's a th- there used to be a thing about earrings, whichever ear you put it in. Les Charles said last week there was something about which side you wore your keys on would say oh, yeah. whether you were yeah, top or bottom. Yeah, but I think I think also it was always that thing of being in certain places. And don't forget that the flirting technique used to be based around having your cigarette lit by somebody mm. oh, with yeah. men and with women. My mum said that to me actually. She said, you know part of smoking when she was young was getting someone to light your cigarette for you and so i was thinking a bit about with gay men if they asked someone for a light and they thought the guy might be gay and they'd be in the street you know there'd be a bit more of a linger going on yeah but But quite often i just want a light (laughs) (laughs) well well, it's different these days we've got grind and love so we do actually just want not for cigarette lights (laughs) you can have it for for many things as well as sex but um what was i going to say i watched what did i watch the jackal the other night uh the original one with um edward fox i think as the mainstay but he had but anton rogers was in there as a gay man in a Turkish bath in Paris, who li- and obviously the jackal had gone to the Turkish bath to pick up a gay man so he could stay for the night with him and not be detected by the police. And I think you're right. It was like you used to go to certain spaces where you would know that gay people would be and they would pick you up. Would be that Turkish baths, a cottage, a cruising area, or a well-known pub. Mm. It was about the pubs. I mean, what was that film I was watching the other night, The Leather Boys? And that scene oh, I love at the that end. Film. Beautiful film. And that scene mm. at the end where um, I've forgotten the name of Dudley Sutton's character, where he walks into the pub and he really has no idea that mm. it's a gay pub. And it's such he does it so beautifully because, um, oh no, not Dudley Sutton, the guy who he, he's in love with. Mm. I've forgotten his name. And he's waiting there because he thinks they're going to go on, on, a, on a ship and find work in America. And it's about those places that were understood to be gay. Obviously, it wasn't legal at the time, so they had to be very, very careful. And I suppose it was about knowing where those places were. And, of course, if you were in particular jobs, and that applied particularly to merchant seamen, anybody in the entertainment industry, I think where it must have been particularly difficult for people in you know, office jobs and civil servants and people who were unable to come out to anybody in their environment. Yeah. That must have been the hardest thing. And then then you would rely on those, either a bar or a bath or a sauna or, you know, a cottage, like public toilet where gay guys would be. I think also... What about a library? Is, is a library some... Is library somewhere? <laughs> no, I was just... I was actually thinking about Joe Orton again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With writing, writing in the library books. Yeah, that's and he interesting. Met people at drama school, didn't he? So they had already got to that point, and obviously he'd, you know, he had he had very little interest. He briefly dated women, but he had no real interest in them. You know, mm. he knew he was gay from a very young age. But what I'm thinking about a lot is in yesteryear, people would get married because that's what they were expected to do, whether they were gay or not. And if they were deeply in the closet, they were more likely to marry somebody just to keep everybody else quiet. Mm. Um, and have a kind of functional friendship with that, within that marriage. It didn't mean they weren't gay, but there was so much of that. Yeah, there definitely was. 
<laughs> it's quite close to home for me. Um, right. Anyway, let's let's move on. Dear old queens, do you remember a time when you visited a city for a weekend and thought you would find love there? I think about it now and I roll my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> They're rolling their eyes that they were so naive. Uh, perhaps. I, I mean, that's all I get from that, really. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Do you think romance can still be found on a weekend away? Um, you know, probably obviously outside of a pandemic. I did go for a weekend away to Bilbao probably about 30 years ago. And I did have a brief romance there. Yeah. And it was beautiful, you know, just walking through this beautiful city, going to little bars with this person. But Sounds he didn't keep in touch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I I had <laughs> I had a romance with a guy. He was a uh, subway driver from New York. Who, when I used to work at the ticket shop, he came in and bought tickets for me, and then hung around for ages and kept staring at me. And I was like staring back at him. And then he left. And then he rang the shop again and went, "Are you the guy that served me with the tickets?" And I was like, "From New York, yeah." But, but, did that sound Welsh? He was yeah. ringing from New York. No, no, no. He was ringing from Bristol because he was here in Bristol. And uh, and I went, yes. And uh, he went, I'd like to take you out for dinner. You're available this evening. And I was like, I'm, no, actually, I'm not. But maybe tomorrow evening. <laughs> and we went out and we had a lovely time. And it was one of the most romantic things that ever happened to me. And we did stay in contact, but he went back to New York and then I met somebody else. But I've also met someone in Barcelona who I had a bit of an affair with for a few years. And so I think it can happen. Well, what about you, Anna? Did you, did you have any romances in New York when you were there? I or Tenerife? Did, yeah. well, I, was there for, I was there for a year and I went backwards and forwards. But there is one particular person. And unfortunately, I can't possibly track him down because his name's much too... There's a lot of people with his name. Right. So it's impossible. He did once write me a fax which I thought was quite impressive. Well, that was the word. Uh, we used to call them sex faxes in the uh, in the ticket shop. My friend Antonio used to have lots of them. Is your fax <laughs> machine still on the go, Anna? No, no, no. He faxed me when I worked for um, the record company. When I was working for Strictly Rhythm Records, I suddenly got this fax one day from him. And what had happened was he was from Brooklyn and he'd gone to live in LA, but he decided to visit some family in New York. And I was living there at the time. So he came to New York to see them and he met me, um, except he was supposed to be seeing a different girl while he was in New York. So she wasn't very pleased because she actually introduced him to me. Now, I'm not that kind of person that would take another girl's boyfriend. But the point was that I don't think he anything had really got off the ground with those two. And I didn't exactly understand what was going on. But we did have a romance. And what I will tell you afterwards was that when he wrote to me, he told me it had been like, and I quote, <laughs> he told me to be the religious experience. <laughs> wow. It was quite incredible. I will tell you that much. And I've never forgotten. Was it like a prayer? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I think it's so frustrating that he's got a very common name. Otherwise... Well, I mean, you know, he's probably you know, married with a load of kids now. And also I am in touch with quite a lot of people from my past. Some of them are married and we're, you know, on really 
lovely terms and sometimes people get back in touch with you you know and you think why are you getting in touch with me now but that was the whole thing with you know first it was friends reunited and it was facebook or whatever and i've realized actually most people don't want anything they just kind of like being in touch with people And, and i have managed to kind of make some peace with people who i maybe thought were a little bit you know not so they didn't maybe finish what they started. Did you have a lot whatever. of ex-lovers contacting you during lockdown? Because that was um, a big thing, wasn't it? Lots of people I was in a re- I was in a relationship when lockdown started and I was in a relationship for just over a year and very sadly, lockdown ended it. <gasps> oh no. Yeah, um, because he's not in London and I went to stay with him um, and after about five weeks, I had to come back to London. Um, I mean, I would have come back anyway. So you were locked down in with him? I was was locked down in the Isle of Wight. Mm. (gasps) And it was very beautiful. There were red squirrels in the back garden and there was like a river in the back of his house. And it was really extraordinarily beautiful. But it was strange there. I mean, it it is the Isle of Wight. um, The Isle of Wight is strange. It's very strange. (laughs) It's very, very strange. It's a bit wicker, man. (laughs) I've got a friend from the Isle of Wight and he might contest to that. Well, there's a wonderful artist, queer artist called Lady Pat. And he's actually doing that. He lives in Ryde and he's doing an exhibition there and he actually calls it the Isle of Wight. (laughs) (laughs) In answer to your question, you know, I don't think it's a really good time to have a relationship when you're in lockdown. And it's, it's actually finished a lot of people's relationships. So... I think, you know, it's a good time to think about getting the whole thing moving again Mm. once it's all over. Yeah, and maybe when you can travel to a different city, who knows what's going to kindle up. Or a different aisle. Yeah. Or a different aisle. Or maybe the Isle of Wight. Who knows? Some people (laughs) might find love in the Isle of Wight. I make no comment about that. (laughs) (laughs) Except when when I watched It's a Sin, I did think very little had changed. Oh, gosh. Yeah, of course. I mean, the the house they used for Rich's house was very similar to the street, Mm. you know, near my ex lives. Yeah, it's 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 very right wing place. And it's but actually there is um, an LGBT festival that's going on there. They're trying to change the image of it because there's a lot of elderly gay people that live there, elderly gay couples and elderly lesbians that belong. And actually, really, you know, I mustn't, I mustn't sound sour because if I didn't like it, I wouldn't have gone. I mean, there were some wonderful things about it. It's just the fact that it's got, it's not particularly diverse, that's all. Did you wear your leopard skin bikini on the beach in Isle of Wight? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't do, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think Anna's leopard skin bikini is going to be the title of this podcast, I think. <laughs> well, I'm just very happy that it still fits me. You know, I've had it for about three or four years and I still get into it, so I'm very pleased about that. Anyway, well, because you've been uh, doing a lot of Pilates over lockdown, haven't you? I, yeah, a lot of Pilates, um, a little bit of home yoga practice. In fact, I don't really think I want to go back into the studios. I like I, I sit in. I got my mats here, mm. mats here, and um, I do a lot of a lot of um, a lot of walking as well. I have walked three and a half miles today. Wow! Yeah. I need to get back to that. Are you are you finding you're still able to walk even with the working stuff? I have to, because that's why I did it today, because work was really driving me crazy. Mm. And I felt like if I actually sat at my desk for one moment more, I was going to, I was going to write a terse email to somebody. And I thought <laughs> that's just so wrong. <laughs> I, and actually, do you know what happened? I went to St. James's Park and this man came up to me and he went, you're Anna Goodman one off Instagram. I said, <laughs> I am. Who are you? He said, I'm London Melancholic. 
<laughs> Do you Was think... he a bit melancholic? He's called London Melancholic. He's a very nice man. Well, but he doesn't, it doesn't seem <laughs> it doesn't seem a melancholic trope to introduce yourself. No. Well, he did. Oh, but did you sexualise him when you saw him? No. Okay. He's, no. he's obviously playing against type. I was very charmed that he did approach me in that way. I thought it was wonderful. I felt like a kind of superstar, counterculture influencer. Amazing. Well, I'm sure. You are a counterculture influencer. You always have been, and you always you. will be. You always will be. <laughs> I'm you. sorry about that, <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're we're going to come to the end of the podcast because we're running over time. Because as I said before, we could talk to you all evening, and hopefully one day we will over a glass of whiskey or two or three or four. That would be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it's been lovely. Well, yeah, say, good, say goodbye to our lovely audience. Goodbye, lovely audience. Please keep listening to What That Old Queen. It's one of the best podcasts you're ever going to hear. <laughs> that's ah, well, that's that, brilliant. Uh, that, we didn't even pay you to say that. <laughs> that's the best advertising we've ever had. <laughs> share it with your friends. <laughs> totally. Please do share. and Absolutely. Give us some money if you can or buy some merch. Uh, but yes. t- Tommy, say goodbye to our lovely audience. Goodbye, lovely audience. <laughs> was there something else you were going to say, Anna? No, I was just going to tell a whiskey company they should sponsor you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Have you got one in mind in particular? Yes, Lagavulin. I've got this big bottle here. Yeah, Lagavulin whiskey. Lagavulin is very easy, rolls off the tongue. Um, yes. I, but we could definitely do a sponsorship ad for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look them up on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, listeners, for listening and supporting us. We will catch you next time on What That Old Queen. You have been listening to What That Old Queen. Written and presented by Tom Marshman and Bernie Hodges. The show was produced by Bernie Hodges for Hodge Podcasting in 2021. If you have a question for the old queens, or you'd like to be a guest, or you want to sponsor a show and give us lots of money, you can email hello at thatoldqueen.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.